Hi, everyone. Well, here in America, as a democratic republic, we don't know a lot about living in a kingdom. But an earthly kingdom is a territory or domain that's governed by a king, and that king has absolute authority and influence over a people. So his dominion and authority are absolute. This is what distinguishes a king from a president or a prime minister, a mayor or a governor. The king has all the power. The people have none. And this metaphor is the one that the Bible uses again and again to describe God's relationship with us. This is where a lot of us Western Christians who never lived in a kingdom get confused. You see, a king is different than a consultant. The main difference is who's calling the shots. And too many Christians have tried to retain Jesus as a consultant rather than to serve him as a king. And so we said last week that one of the central roles that Jesus came to fulfill was the promised Messiah or kingship in the line of David. And today I want to take that one step further and explore the, the, the kind of kingdom that Jesus established. So this series is a study in Christology. And Pastor Sarah and I are building week after week on this picture of Jesus. And we're, we're going to treat the person and work of Jesus like a diamond that you hold up and you spin around. And the, they see the light from each angle that's more beautiful than the last. And one of the things Jesus talked about often was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And as we said last week, it was not exactly the kind of kingdom that people expected. And I think part of the reason it was so shocking and even off-putting to some was because of what our big idea today captures. It's that Jesus' kingdom upends our definitions of power and success. It's an upside-down kingdom. So, so just let me talk generally about the kingdom of God for a moment. First, you need to know that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God a lot. He, he mentioned it over a hundred times in the Gospels. And just by way of definition, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he's talking about the rule and reign of God over all the earth for all time. And so Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is a new way of living and thinking, not a, a physical kingdom with armies and walls and castles. Let me give you a few examples. Jesus said in John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but my kingdom is not from the world. And so he's already establishing that this is a different kind of kingdom than, than we're used to. And then in Luke 4, 43, he connects this kingdom message to his divine purpose. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Listen, for I was sent for this purpose. And then there's this summary statement in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33. He presents the importance of each Christian prioritizing the kingdom. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And so Jesus begins his ministry in Mark, in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so I want to dwell on this last one just for a moment. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. This is the decisive moment that all of history has been pointing to. This is the inauguration of God's final act. And Jesus came to kick it off. Now, the verse ends with what we should do with this kingdom. Our part is to repent, to turn from our old lives. And then he says, believe in the gospel. That's how we're supposed to respond during this lifetime. But it's that middle part of the verse that I want to dial in on. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Some translations say that it is near. Others' translations say that it is here. And so what is it? And let me just say it this way. It is both here and near. One of the big questions you see is, did the kingdom arrive with Jesus, or will we not experience the kingdom until we get to heaven? Like, we look around at some of the stuff that's happening in the world, and we think, well, this can't be it. 
And intriguingly, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus keeps it kind of vague by refusing to answer whether the kingdom has come now or will come later. He, he just simply says, come your kingdom. That's the literal translation. We say, your kingdom come. But when is it coming? Well, the kingdom is now and the kingdom is also not yet. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is near. And the more time passes, it's continually drawing nearer, by the way. And it'll be finalized at the second coming of Jesus. And so we will finally and fully experience God's kingdom in heaven. That's the not yet. And every time we witness the brokenness and struggle and the suffering of this world, we're reminded that it's not fully here yet. But we don't have to just wait for it either. There's also a decisive now to the kingdom. In fact, as Dallas Willard talked about uh, following Jesus in, in, in this world, he said, discipleship is learning how to live in heaven before you die. God is not just keeping us alive until he decides to take us to heaven. He's equipping us now to be ready for it. Heaven is not meant to be a huge shock for us when we get there, like, like some celestial holiday resort that looks nothing like the pictures on the website. You know, where we wake up in heaven and go, oh, I never thought it would be like this. Yes, of course, it's going to be wonderful. and It's going to be better than we can possibly imagine. But the point is this. Heaven's values are ones that we should be practicing and living right now. So it's it's here, it's now, and it's also not yet. It's here and near. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus' kingdom is misunderstood. It was back then, and it still is today, even from his closest friends and followers, one of them being John the Baptist, who helped launch Jesus' ministry. And, and even John the Baptist began to question Jesus and his kingdom. You know, John wound up in prison. He was eventually beheaded by Herod Antipas. Before he dies, he sends word to Jesus through the disciples. And John the Baptist asks kind of a provocative question in Matthew 11. He says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so, you know, we're asking like, how did you get from, you know, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals to are you the real deal or should we be looking for the next so-called king? Because right now, John's saying, I'm being held captive by this dude that I thought you came to take down, Jesus. And so how does Jesus respond to John's somewhat rude question? Well, Jesus says, Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And then he says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now there's something very fascinating going on here in this exchange. See, when Jesus reports back to John, he's actually quoting two passages that John would certainly have known from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. John was very familiar with Isaiah, we know, because he quoted Isaiah 40 when he was describing his own ministry. So when the religious leaders asked John, who are you? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So, so John was quoting Isaiah texts. He knew these texts that Jesus was referring to. But the surrounding context of both Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 that Jesus is quoting back the context has to do with God's judgment, God's vengeance, God's retribution. We know what's partly behind John's question, it, it, you know, the one where he said, are you the one or should we look for another? It's the same question the disciples struggled with. Jesus, we thought that you were a different kind of king, ushering a different kind of kingdom. Like we thought you were coming to take down the government. We thought you were coming to save us from these Roman oppressors. And so John is thinking in prison, the Messiah was supposed to rescue us from the brutes like Herod Antipas, who's about to kill me. So what are you waiting for, Jesus, is the question. Bring the fire, bring the judgment. And so when Jesus quotes back the Isaiah passages to him, but he leaves out all the judgment parts, he leaves out all the vengeance, he only includes the parts about healings and renewals, Jesus is doing something. He's saying, John, look closely. 
the promised messianic blessings. They've already dawned. The kingdom is already here. Look around. It's all happening. Healing and renewal and restoration have begun. My new kingdom is here, and yet it's not fully here. The judgment that you're referring to, the judgment you're hoping for, it's not going to happen now. And so hang in there. Because he adds the end, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me or who is not offended by me. And John had to learn along with the rest of the disciples and with us, by the way, that instead of the king coming with shock and awe, like Operation Desert Storm, anybody remember this? Instead, the kingdom was coming slowly, which is why it was often misunderstood. Even though Jesus in his teachings was very clear. He described the kingdom in his teachings a bunch of different ways. He would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and she mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. He's saying it's going to begin small and unassuming in a small town in an ancient land with 12 uneducated leaders. And it's going to work its way through the dough. It's going to work its way around the world over a long period of time. No shock and awe here. Where he said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds. Yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants that becomes a tree and so that the birds might come and perch on its branches. Again, tiny beginnings, but eventually exponential growth that supplies rest and relief. Or he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field. So again, Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to be so low key. It's almost like a secret. But, but when you find it, it's worth more than you could ever pay for it. And so you, you'll give up everything. You'll sacrifice everything to obtain it. And then he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl who, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's insanely valuable and yet hidden like a pearl of great price. You see, Jesus is teaching again and again these cryptic kind of messages about this unexpected kingdom. And so people misunderstood the kingdom of God. And, and we do too sometimes. And here's what this means for us. It's why we live with groaning. It's why the whole earth is still groaning with deadly viruses and natural disasters and political chaos. And it's why we can still have hope and still love the broken and still passionately serve in the meantime because we're in this weird in-between. The kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. The blessings are happening, but they're not happening completely. And justice for the wicked hasn't fully come. We need to endure a little longer. And it's as if Jesus looked back at John the Baptist and his probing question. And he said, yes, I'm the one. You did your job, John. There's a bigger story being written. You're going to die in that prison. But it wasn't for nothing. You're right where you need to be, and I've got you. Even though you're suffering, remember all that I'm doing. The kingdom is here, but it's not fully realized yet. And the part that's here is totally upside down from what you'd expect it to be. It has totally upended that the world's definitions of success and power. And so what I want to do is to look at three upside down kingdom principles. I mentioned last week that the prophecies foretold that Jesus wouldn't be the kind of king everyone was looking for. In fact, he would be a, a suffering servant king. The prophecies foretold King Jesus as one who was despised and rejected and oppressed and afflicted and killed for the sins of his people. That, that should have been the first clue into this upside-down kingdom principle that, that just goes like this. Winning comes through dying. See, it was in giving his life that Jesus gained victory. 
When Paul would later write his letter to the Colossian church, he described it this way. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, he disarmed the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Saying, Jesus, he was dying. It didn't look like he was winning. He poured out his life into death, bearing our sin. But in doing so, he won. He canceled the charges against us, which led both to his victory and ours. And then later in Galatians 2.20, Paul uses similar language, saying that, that he's been crucified with Christ. It looks like dying. But now he lives by faith in the risen Christ. In the same way, you see, it is, is by dying to ourselves and crucifying our flesh that we can have life in Christ and the victory that comes through him. Jesus described it this way in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? See, winning comes through dying. But he also put out there this principle that power should be used under, not over. See, Jesus also confronts our definition of power. Matthew 20, 25 says this. It says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's he doing? He's redefining Christian power. He's redefining Christian leadership. Again, this last midterm election, I saw so many Christians on both sides of the aisle basically selling their souls, clamoring to get their side into power. Guys, Jesus redefined power as something we steward to make others great to put others first, to see others succeed. In fact, God would later tell Paul that God's power would be made perfect in Paul's weakness. You see, it's weakness that leads to power. And it sounds so backwards to our ears, doesn't it? But it's Jesus revealing to us his upside-down kingdom. If you want to be first, become last. If you want to be great, be a servant. It's power under, not power over. Here's the third principle I want you to see, that the least in this world can have the greatest satisfaction. You know, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in what we call the Beatitudes, Jesus demonstrated that those that our world looks down on are at the very top in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus begins his sermon with these eight declarations of, of blessedness. He begins each one of them with the word blessed. And this word blessed, it's a rich and deep word. It describes a spiritual well-being. It, it, it describes an enlarging of spirit. I think the best way to sum it up is, is deeply satisfied. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying that in this new kingdom, even the poor in spirit can, can be deeply satisfied. And so I want to read a summary starting in, in verse 3 of the first part of the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor and pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you, he says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. What's Jesus doing? He's presenting these upside-down descriptions of those who are deeply satisfied. 
under God's rule in God's kingdom. And these characteristics, they're truly the opposite values of the world, aren't they? I mean, I want you to see some of these kingdom characteristics side by side with some of our worldly characteristics. And the difference couldn't be starker. And so poor in spirit or or self-sufficient, mournful over sin or unaffected by sin, meek and in control of your faculties or demanding and out of control, merciful or cutthroat, pure in heart, concerned about what's going on inside or focused on appearances, what's going on outside, peacemaking or instigating. Like if you were writing a book on how to be successful in this world, you'd probably go straight down that right column. That describes worldly success to a T. And if you live out that right column, listen, you may get a big paycheck. You may get a big house and a nice car. But but things might go up and to the right for you for a while. But the the promises associated with that left column, the upside-down column, those promises are incredible. I want you to listen to the benefits of the righteous life. He says, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons and daughters of God. And in the climax in verse 12, your reward will be great in heaven. This is no contest, guys. Dallas Willard in his great book called The Divine Conspiracy that I'd love every one of you to read. It says, Jesus is not like commanding these behaviors. The the Beatitudes are not a list of instructions that we're supposed to go down and check off. They're just a list of the kinds of people to whom the kingdom of God has now been made available. And so so when Jesus says, you know, blessed are you when you're poor, blessed are you when you're hungry, blessed are the ones who weep, blessed are you when people hate you, it's not because he's saying it's good to be poor and hungry and weepy and hated. (laughs) Those things are not good. But what is good is that the kingdom of God has now become available to you through Jesus. And in his kingdom, under God's loving rule and reign, you will be completely satisfied. It might help to to think about this sermon, to to imagine Jesus using specific people from the crowd on the hillside where he's preaching that day. So, So just put yourself there in your imagination on that grassy field and imagine Jesus scanning the crowd as he he approaches someone that he seems to recognize and he comes up to him, someone that he recently helped it's a man who, 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 who was brought to Jesus because he had a d- demon possession. He was emotionally tormented. He was out of his mind. He'd never experienced the love of community. Nobody was ever asking him for his opinion about God or about anything else because he was certifiably crazy. And now he's here. He's calm. He's in his right mind. He's here in the crowd listening to Jesus as a disciple. Why? Because even though he had done nothing to deserve it, even though he had no merit, Jesus had healed him. And so Jesus says, stand up, stand up, get up. And he comes right to him and he says, here, here's my friend. And they smile at each other, remembering his healing. And Jesus turns him around, turn around, turn around, face the crowd. He says, do you want to know who's blessed? Do you know who's completely satisfied in my kingdom? This guy right here. Blessed are are the spiritual basket cases. Blessed are the faith challenge. Blessed are the religious disasters. Let's call them poor in spirit. For now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the guy sits back down, they high five. And the crowd oohs and ahs because they remember what that guy used to be like. Nobody ever looked at that guy and oohed and ahed before, but now they do because of Jesus. And then he goes up to a middle-aged woman over here. Her, Her whole married life, she's always been sad because she was unable to have children. And this particular day, she was desperately broken because not only didn't she have any children, but now recently her husband had died too, and she's all alone. 
She's penniless. In those days, to, to be a widow, like to, to, to tell the truth, she, she would have supported herself by becoming a prostitute because that was the only way to earn money. But now she's even too old for that. She has no hope. And so she comes to the mountain that day to listen to Jesus because she had nowhere else to go, nowhere, nowhere else to turn to. Jesus sees her and he says, stand up. Stand up. And he puts his arm around this woman's shoulder. He tells her to face the crown. Turn around, turn around. He says, my friend here, she's had a really tough stretch. But in my kingdom, do you want to know who's blessed? Blessed are those who mourn. Not because being sad is inherently good, but because now, because of this upside down kingdom, comfort is here for those who mourn. And mourners can be completely satisfied even in their sadness. In fact, just watch what happens in the life of this woman going forward because she's now part of the kingdom of the great blessing. And again, when you start thinking about the Beatitudes this way, Jesus is not commanding mourning as a good thing. He's not saying, you need to mourn more and then you're going to be happy. No, he's saying, blessed are those who thought they had missed out. Blessed are those who thought all the, the sad stuff had caused them to miss out on the good life because now through me, here is this new kingdom. And if you want it, come right on in. It's open for you. These days... Jesus' Sermon on the Mount might have included people like, you know, blessed are the anxious college students, blessed are the unemployed, blessed are the sexually confused, blessed are those who think their job defines them, blessed are those who, who are corporate ladder climbers, blessed are the failures, blessed are those who were abused, blessed are those who used to abuse others, blessed are all those people who thought they had missed out because the doors of the kingdom of God have been thrown wide open to you. And if you will position yourself under the rule and reign of God in this new kingdom, you, even you, can live a deeply satisfied life. And so Jesus redefines the kind of life that brings true joy and true satisfaction. And listen, this is not some pie-in-the-sky vision of what's, what it's going to be like in heaven someday. Jesus is saying, no, this new kingdom has arrived right now. When Jesus became a man, he brought with him the presence of God and the kingdom of heaven to the here and now. And so what does this mean for us? Well, not only do we need to learn from these kingdom principles, but it's important for every Christian in the room to hear this clarion call. You are an agent of this, of Jesus Christ's upside down kingdom. You are a kingdom bringer. And I just want you to dream for a minute. What would life be like on this earth if God were the reigning king? Like what would change in our world if God were truly in charge? Remember the Lord's Prayer, that phrase, we, we, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's next? On earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Bring up there, down here. That's a kingdom prayer. And then Jesus looked at us and he said, okay, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Now you go out and be kingdom bringers. You go out and extend mercy and justice. What does that look like? Well, we just got our first big snow. We're heading into a long winter here in Erie, PA. But I've always thought that bringing the kingdom to bear looks like what, what it looks like here when spring comes. You know, with the, the spring, when the snow and ice, they begin to retreat and water begins to gurgle again in the streams. New life starts bursting forward everywhere. The gray and the brown landscape starts turning green. It's so when we hit what my, was my wife Kim's favorite moment of the year. It's only one day, but there's one day in the spring when the buds on the trees are, are lime green. It feels like you're in a Dr. Seuss book. 
And then fruit starts to appear on the vines and on the trees and the sun's rays shine almost to the point of it hurting your eyes and flowers bloom and honeybees buzz and goodness returns to our world. That's what Jesus' kingdom should feel like to this dark world. And when Jesus left earth and he went back to heaven, he left it in our hands, Christians. You and I are sent to the cold places, to the broken and ragged places, to the edges of our world, not to complain about all the bad news, but to be the good news. We're to be the, the, the healing balm on the open sores of our society, the poverty and the disease and the hunger, and the injustice and the exploitation and the marginalized and the excluded and the discarded. Like part of our role as agents of this new kingdom is to come alongside the struggling, to bring hope to the hopeless, to remind everyone that renewal is possible, that forgiveness and reconciliation is possible through Jesus, our leader and king. It's not a Republican kingdom. It's not a democratic kingdom. It's a Jesus kingdom that's going to truly heal our world. And can you imagine as Christians if we understood our role to be not just dads and moms and not just students at school and not just business women or shop workers or teachers or counselors? What if we understood what Jesus wanted us to understand? That part of our calling and part of our passion must be to go into the world and to go about our days restoring and repairing and rebuilding and redeeming every dimension of our human society. I don't know what field your career is in, but no matter what it is, whether it's law or medicine or the academia or the arts or business or the trades, no matter what you are doing, you are like the bursting of spring after a cold winter because we're agents of an upside-down kingdom. It's when Alina walks into the nurse's station at the start of her shift. And instead of just jumping into business as usual, there are hugs with the other staff and how are yous and tender words to disarm and the, the anxiety that has built and, the, and a brief reminder that sickness and death don't write the last chapter. And it's when Mike goes into his business meeting at work and instead of losing his cool or matching the greedy ambition of his peers, his even and level-headed demeanor bring a calm to the room. He's not thinking about how impressive his work is. In fact, he's not thinking much about himself at all. He's bringing reminders of how the work of his company is doing good in the world and helping humanity. Or, or Jill, instead of matching the bitterness at the kid drop-off exchange with her ex, she's able to answer softly when challenged harshly. She's able to act dignified when he tries to humiliate and, and is restrained even when she's promoted. These are kingdom reminders. And they're like the fresh smell of spring in the air after a long and dark winter. The kingdom is coming. But because it's not fully arrived yet, that also means we live in a kingdom tension. Because there's still what seems to be unanswered prayer. And there's still sickness. And there's still suffering. And there's still physical death of people that we care about. Paul described our glimpse of the new kingdom in 1 Corinthians 13. He said it's as though we're, we're looking through a glass dimly or darkly. He, he didn't have frosted glass at the time, but that would be the modern equivalent. That when we, when we stare up at heaven, when we think about the future kingdom, where we're looking through frosted glass. Like we get some ideas of the outlines, we get some ideas of the contours and the, and the possibility of what the image might really look like, and it is fantastically exciting. But... But the fullness of the picture remains disappointingly vague, just out of reach. But when you arrive, oh man, 
Just imagine your greatest experience on earth. Imagine your most intimate relationship. Imagine your most intense joy and multiply it by a hundred and extend it forever. That's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. But while we're here, in between the now and the not yet, we live in kingdom tension, which means a couple things. It means that we're going to be both contented and discontented. Contentment is a key byproduct of the Christian life. Like as we experience the now of God's kingdom, we see wonderful fruit. We see peace and joy flourishing within us. We see forgiveness. We see it all even in difficult circumstances. But, but that's not the whole story, is it? We also hope. The problem with hope is that hope implies that things are not as they should be. Hope is an outworking of discontentment. I've heard it called a holy discontent, which I think is a great description. You can be both full of peace and making good progress and still slam your fists on the table at times and say it's not supposed to be like this. That's the kingdom tension we're in. It also means that we'll live with a tension of being, uh, of being and becoming. I cannot stress strongly enough that God loves you as you are. He made you that way. But as we are all painfully aware, our being is not perfect, not even close. Sin has made sure of that. And so the major task of walking with Jesus through the rest of our lives is simply to become what we already are. We are not just human beings. We are human becomings, living little by little, more of the, the not yet in the now. Or to return to where we started, slowly learning to live in heaven before we die. Living in an upside-down kingdom can be confusing at times. As those who were living when Jesus arrived quickly found out, they, they didn't know they needed a savior. What they wanted was a king. What they needed was a savior. And we can do the same thing. We can get into this groove where we, we, we want to work for Jesus and we want Jesus to work for us, but, but we don't want him messing around with our hearts. We don't want a savior. See, they wanted a certain kind of king who would ease their burdens, who would free their life from oppression, who, who would eliminate some of the pain and suffering that they were experiencing on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I get that. That's real. But when Jesus comes and he offers freedom, when Jesus comes and he offers peace, it doesn't always mean that our external circumstances are going to change on this side of heaven. But the long view, the long view is spectacular. See what happens when Jesus shows up and he's not the king you were expecting. Like John, you know, maybe you're asking today, hey, Jesus, are you the one or should I expect another? Like you thought that by receiving Christ in your life, by surrendering your life to him, he would make your life easy. And then he calls you to live more deeply. And that's hard. Or you thought he would erase all your suffering, but then you discover he's walking next to you in your pain instead of removing it altogether. Or you, you thought he would make you like superhuman strong, and he says, I want you to learn strength in weakness. Or you thought he would destroy your enemies, and he turns around and tells you to love them. You thought, he would, you thought you would see him in spectacular miracles, like we talked about last week, but instead he shows up in the ordinary, in the hidden acts of love and self-sacrifice. Will you follow him anyway? He's an upside-down king, leading an upside-down kingdom. But the payoff, both in the now and the not yet, is spectacular. So as we close, I'd love for you to consider this. It's a reflection. We just ask you to ask yourself, what would it look like for you to embody the upside-down kingdom of Jesus in your real world this week? Will you think of one way that you could be an agent of this kingdom this week as you go? Love you guys.